Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. In today's episode, we speak to University of Cambridge professor Paul Cartledge about the forgotten city-state of Thebes. We talk about the early history of Thebes and how it fits into Greek mythology, all the way up until Thebes became the superpower of the Greek world in the 4th century BC and was later destroyed and defeated by Alexander the Great and his army. It's a fascinating conversation, and as always, you can find links and show notes at ancientheroes.net. Okay, so I'm here with Paul Cartledge who is the A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture Emeritus at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Clare College. Uh, He has written and edited more than 20 books, including The Spartans, Alexander the Great, Thermopylae, and Democracy, A Life. And he has a brand new book that just came out in September called Thebes, the Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, which is already getting great reviews, including by the Wall Street Journal. So is there anything I'm, I'm leaving out or getting wrong there? No, no, you're doing extremely well. 10 out of 10. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so this new book is about Thebes and you call it the Forgotten City. So for listeners that aren't familiar with Thebes, can you just start by talking a little bit about what Thebes was and why you chose that title for the book? Thebes, unfortunately, is also the name. It's originally Greek, but it was also given to a major, major Egyptian city. So actually the capital of the new kingdom. So if you go to Egypt, you go to Thebes, which is Luxor today. And so when you talk to people who are not familiar with ancient Greece or the ancient world, they tend to think Egyptian. And I have to say, no, hang on. Actually, the original is Greek. And uh, there's a further complication that there were more than one city called Thebes, even in the Greek world. At any rate, the one I'm talking about is in central Greece, in a region known as Boeotia, Boeotia in modern Greek. It's about 90 kilometers northwest of Athens, if that gives you a bit of a, a pitch. And forgotten because, well, two reasons, I suppose. One is that for 20 years, having had an existence for hundreds of years. For 20 years, it ceased to exist altogether. And that was because it was physically destroyed uh, at the orders of Alexander, King of Macedon, Alexander III, better known as Alexander the Great, because Thebes, together with Athens, rebelled against the Macedonian power. And Alexander wanted to make an example He was about to go off to Asia to take on the Persian Empire, which, of course, he defeated. But he did not wish to have any major Greek city in his rear causing problems such that he might have to come back from Asia. So he dealt with Thebes in the most um, destructive manner imaginable. 6,000 Thebans were sold into slavery. Um, We don't know how many were killed. The city ceased to exist, etc. But the other reason, the second reason, is the one that I really started with. It's forgotten because other cities, whether called Thebes or not, have tended to occupy, as it were, the premiership, the first division of people's attention. So in Greek terms, Athens, Sparta, and I've already mentioned Macedon. 
these tend to be more prominent than thieves. But my case is that it's unjustly forgotten and that there are very good reasons why we should recall the contribution Thebes made to ancient Greek and therefore to our via the Romans civilization. Great, great. Well, um, before we get into that contribution, um, I think that's a great point about Athens and Sparta. Uh, that's what people always seem to be focused on and thinking of when they, when they talk about ancient Greece. Um, what role did Thebes play in that world of ancient Greece with those city-states? And, you know, going back to the history, um, you know, in the centuries before Alexander destroyed Thebes, what was, what was it like relative to, you know, you had democracy in Athens, you had, I believe, kings in Sparta and also Macedon. How, was, how did Thebes fit into this whole landscape? Right. Well, you're very well informed. Um, if we go back even further before the historical city-states, and that's very important because a lot of the myths of Thebes, as indeed of Athens and other cities, but especially of Thebes, are set in an imagined long time ago. And we can actually pinpoint the physical time when those myths would have had application when they would have originated. And that's in what we call the late Bronze Age. So Thebes was one of about half a dozen major um, sites, um, fortified, um, very centralized palace administration, presumably a king, and so on and so on. What we call the Mycenaean period. Then there's right. a kind of hiatus. We're not absolutely sure why the Mycenaean civilization, prehistoric Bronze Age civilization, fell, but it collapsed by 1100 BC, from 1200 to 1100, such that the population fell, these great centers ceased to exist as great centers, literacy was completely lost, almost all outside connection from the Greeks to their Near Eastern and uh, Southern neighbors was lost. Some people talk of a dark age. Anyway, the situation you refer to, the city-state situation, starts to come into being round about 800, 700 BC. And that's about three to 400 years before the Alexander the Great period. So what we call the archaic, that's the pre-classical and the classical period, 8th, 7th, 6th, 5th, 4th centuries, that's the period that obviously historians like me focus on. So Thebes starts out as being, in a way, quite normal. That's to say there was no democracy anywhere in the Greek world before at the earliest 500 BC. So for a couple of centuries, we're dealing with aristocracy or oligarchy, ruled by a few, either well-born or simply rich. And Thebes was absolutely bog standard, if you like, except it was one of the two most important cities of its region, the other one being Orkomenos in Boeotia. So that Boeotia has um, possibly 20 city-states eventually, but Thebes and Orkomenos are the two most prominent, and there's a kind of rivalry between them. But Thebes emerges as number one. However, the greatest power of the earliest historical period of Greece is Sparta. 
This is before Athens rises. Sparta is the dominant power in the Peloponnese, spreads its influence to the central Greece, and therefore that includes taking on Athens. And Thebes therefore has, as it very often has to do, to decide between two or more greater powers than it. So to begin with, it goes with Sparta. So it finds itself against Athens. Doesn't do too brilliantly. We're now about 500 BC, and the major issue that then confronts the entire Aegean Greek world, remembering that there are lots of Greek cities all around the Mediterranean, all around the Black Sea, so this is just the central core, is Aegean Greece, 700 or so uh, separate political entities. The big issue is Persia. Fastest growing, largest empire of the East to date, rises in the middle of the 6th century, expands all the way to the Aegean in the West, North Africa to Egypt, and then into the East, into Pakistan and what's today uh, Northwest India. So what attitude do we take? Now this is where my poor old Thebes makes a terrible um, mistake uh, in retrospect. It might not have thought it was at the time. Sparta and Athens decide that they're going to take on the Persians. That's to say they're not going to just sit back and allow the Persians to expand even further west than they've already got, which is to the western what's today Turkey seaboard. And so they get together in an alliance and they summon any Greek cities of the mainland who wish to resist the Persians' attempt to expand into mainland Greece. Thebes, at this point, decides to go with Persia. And that was the excuse, it's 140 years later, that Alexander used for destroying Thebes in 335. I mean, they really paid a heavy price, not only immediately, because actually the loyalist Greeks, they won the Battle of Salamis, they won the Battle of Patea. Persians didn't take over mainland Greece. Thebes, therefore, was punished. But they then got a double <laughs> whammy. They got destroyed 140 years later on the basis that they had once been traitors to Greece. And Alexander is representing Greece against the Persian Empire. So during the 5th and 4th centuries, the broad political distinction, and this is one analyzed very famously by Aristotle in his politics, Aristotle being a teacher of uh, Alexander the Great. There are two broad types of political institution or organization, oligarchic, that is the citizens who are wealthy. They have a certain minimum wealth or they are so wealthy that they don't have to work. There are various ways of deciding why or how you are rich in ancient Greece. Or if you're poor, then you're on the other side of the political divide and then you support democracy. So you have this broad distinction between cities which follow Athens' lead, democracy, and cities which follow Sparta's lead, basically oligarchy. Thebes is one of those. However, Thebes, interestingly, in the fifth century, develops a new form of oligarchic uh, representation and government, namely federalism. And that's why in the book, I mean, especially for American readers, they probably think back to um, possibly 
a couple of leagues which existed after Alexander the Great, which your founding fathers pointed to as models of federalism in the ancient Greek world. But actually the Thebans were there first, um, back in the sixth century, very um, uh, slightly, and then much more definitely in the fifth century. And then the big issue is after the Persian Wars between um, Athens and Sparta, the so-called Peloponnesian War. And Thebes, being oligarchic, is on Sparta's side. Sparta wins. And so for a brief period, at the end of the fifth, into the fourth century, Sparta has no rival. Athens is out of the picture. Thebes is on Sparta's side. It's the second most important city, therefore. And um, Sparta rules the roost. But... Sparta has internal problems. Sparta makes terrible mistakes. They even alienate the Thebans who go over to the Athenians against the Spartans. So in the first half of the fourth century, as we call it, 400 to 350, you have a realignment whereby it's not Thebes and Sparta versus Athens, but Crucially, it's Thebes and Athens against Sparta, which culminates in a major, major battle it's called the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BC, fought on Boeotian soil. Therefore, Sparta is the aggressor. But Sparta by this time has not allowed for what I think we're mainly going to be talking about, the heroic rise of Thebes, right. a new kind of polity, a new kind of army, led by extraordinary people, and they, they smash Sparta. And for 10 years, Thebes is top dog, head of even Athens in the whole of Greece. So this is just a brief interlude before Macedon, Philip of Macedon and his son Alexander, they rise up. And as I said right at the beginning, they defeat the joint Thebes and Athens resistance rebellion Sparta by this time out of the picture. It's relatively a minor player. And that's where we are, 335. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so I wanna I wanna go through some of that definitely in more detail. So it sounds like in the four hundreds BC, Thebes basically took the side of the Persians as the Persians were encroaching into the Greek mainland. And is that is that during the time of Leonidas, the famous it Leonidas is. of Sparta? Okay, like from the movie 300 that I'm sure, <laughs> you know, a lot of people are familiar with. Um, so, okay, so at that time, Thebes, was it common that other Greek cities were also siding with Persia? Yeah, let me fill in the picture. This was the biggest uh, amphibious invasion of Europe before June the 6th. 1944, that is D-Day, when the Americans led uh, the invasion oh, to, wow. to overthrow the Nazis. So we are in um, a major, I mean, it really was a big deal, because by then it was quite clear the Persians' aim was to make of Greece the next province of the Persian Empire. Now, it's a little unfair on Thebes to just say it went over to the Persian side. Every Greek... <laughs> north of Thebes, and the, the land army was going to come from the uh, Hellespont, the Dardanelles, 
along northern Aegean and then down into mainland Greece. So all Greeks north of Thebes, with just a few exceptions, there were exceptions, had gone over to the Persians already. They'd thrown in the towel, or as the ancients put it, they'd given earth and water. They were the two symbols mm. that, as it were, Persia, you own my earth. Here's water as well, just to make clear my territory is yours, so I'm your subject, earth and water. So why did Thebes not look south to Athens, which, as I said, was just 55-odd miles, 90 kilometers to the southeast, or to Sparta, which dominated everything up to the, the middle of Greece? And I think one reason is obviously the first, that um, the, all the rest of the north had gone over, so it would go, they were going to be front line if they'd resisted. The other reason might be that um, they had a particularly, um, what should we say, later Thebans said that it was a kind of un illegitimate regime. I think they were being putting a nice gloss on it. That their oligarchic rulers, the few of them, were actually, if you think back to the 30s, uh, 1930s, to the appeasers in Europe, right. who, yes, here's Hitler, he's got the whole of Europe and he's now going to attack the Soviet Union. What do we do in Britain? Do we follow Churchill, resist at all costs? Or do we try to strike a deal? Because we're not going to win, are we? And so that's exactly what I think happened in um, Thebes, that they were anyway, as it were, right-wing. And so they weren't as opposed to the kind of regime that Persia was, a, an autocracy, ruled by an emperor, and secondly, a regime that propped up, that supported in its subordinate areas, narrow regimes, either tyrants or oligarchs, not democracies, and, and no, no, at any cost. So I think it was partly ideological, partly pragmatic, the Thebans decided to go with the Persians. But... Our main source is Herodotus, the first historian, really the first historian of the West, actually. But um, his subject is why did the Persians and the Greeks fight the way they did? And why did the resisting Greeks eventually win as they did? And he points out that a number of Thebans actually fought on the side with Leonidas, 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 at Thermopylae. Mm. And the issue then was... Were they there under duress? Did um, Leonidas sort of take them as hostages to, so that the Thebans who were in his rear at least wouldn't actively help the Persians? They wouldn't stab Leonidas and his men in the back. Or did these Thebans simply up sticks, leave, you know, as volunteers? and join, hey, Leonidas, we want to join you. In which case they are patriots, they are anti-Persian um, Hellenists. Right. So we're not absolutely sure of the answer. And part of the problem was the reprisals. If you think to France after the Second World War and how the people who claim to be in the resistance punish those they claim to be collaborators, whether they were resistors or were collaborators. A lot of scores were settled after the, the Persian was after the Persians had been mm. sent back to Persia. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons I'm asking because in studying Alexander the Great quite a bit over the last few years, I mean he continued to use that justification, you know, as he invaded 
Asia and destroyed Persian cities. And, you know, it was always hearkening back to those, to that invasion of Greece in the right. 400s. Um, so, uh, you know, and in some cases, you know, maybe that was some kind of legitimate narrative. Uh, in other cases, it, it seemed like an excuse, but, um, okay, so just that's... Were, yeah, there clearly were some horrible pro-Persian Thebans. I mean, there's no doubt about that, who were prepared to kill their fellow Greeks in the interests of the Persians, and they, they weren't doing it under duress. They actually thought it was a good thing. But whether most Thebans, so if you, as it were, taken a poll, um, which side would you rather be on, everything being equal? We don't know. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so, so now, so that sets a little bit of the stage. So now moving ahead to, to what you described as the heroic rise of Thebes. And this is a fascinating aspect of Theban history that I kind of stumbled onto, again, while studying Alexander, because he ends up facing them along with Philip, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, but there's this period of ancient Greece where Thebes is the reigning champion of all the city-states. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of what, um, how, did, how did that happen? How did they develop the, the strength necessary to defeat Sparta, which everyone thinks of Sparta as basically invincible. They're the warlike yeah city-state, you know, how did Thebes rise to the level of being able to defeat Sparta and basically become the superpower, albeit for a, for a somewhat short period of time? Very good question. We, I think, probably better start in the uh, very late 5th century, 404 BC. Athens has lost a 27-year war, on and off, with intervals, something like 27 years war in which it had been ranged with its allies against Sparta and its allies, including Thebes, and in which the final decisive phase of fighting had taken place at sea, and that was therefore between the navy of the Athenians and the navy of the Spartans, in which the key decisive factor for the Spartans was Persian money. And there's an irony. Sparta in 480-479 led the Greek resistance against Persia. In four, um, from 413 to 404, Sparta gets lots and lots of Persian money. It can build ships, it can hire sailors, it can get quite good on the sea thanks to Persia because Persia's main enemy always throughout the fifth century is Athens. So they will always help anybody who's against Athens. So the Persian um, contribution was absolutely vital. The Peloponnesian War is over in 404. Thebes is on the winning side, and it's done very well indeed by um, taking the winning side, but also in the last phase of the war, Sparta had occupied Athenian territory. They'd pitched a base camp between Athens and the Boeotian border. So between Thebes's territory and Athens' territory, about midway. And Thebans had come over the border under the cover of that Spartan camp, its base, and raided the territory of the Athenians, physically removing bits of furniture, uh, wood, 
and in other ways, ways doing damage to the Athenians, stopping them farming, doing all sorts of things, killing any Athenians they happen to come across. So Thebes did very well out of the Peloponnesian War, and that's the beginning of its, um, this is an irony, its irritation with Sparta, because Sparta, having in a way won with Persian help, with Theban help, was massively ungrateful, apparently, to the Thebans for the help that the Thebans had given them and seemed to arrogate all the spoils, all the glory of the victory to themselves. So there's the beginnings of disaffection in the Theban political class. Amongst those, there's a division opening up. Those who will support Sparta come what may because Sparta typically supports oligarchy. So there are going to be high-ranking Theban politicians, oligarchs, who know that in a crisis, the Spartans are going to come in and support them. So they'll support them. Then you get those more independent-minded Thebans, less oligarchic, more open-minded, more, in fact, open towards democracy, as it turns out. But we won't know that for quite a long time, who start thinking, well, Sparta's not been the most brilliant leader. It's not sharing the spoils. It's not giving us due uh, credit. And actually, there, there is a resistance movement to Spartan heavy-handedness in mainland Greece, both in the Peloponnese and in central Greece, whereby Thebes lines up with Athens, with Argos, which is a major enemy of um, Sparta, always in the Peloponnese. And the three of them form an alliance together with another city, which is uh, a rebel from Sparta in the Peloponnese called Mantinea in Arcadia. And this quadruple alliance fights a war against Sparta, a 10-year war almost, 395, to 387 or so, 386. And Thebes, therefore, um, having been on the right side in the Peloponnesian War, is on the wrong side because Sparta, again with Persian help, Athens is against Sparta, so Persia supports Sparta against Athens. Again, Athens loses, and therefore this time Thebes loses. And it loses in a very, very big way. Sparta um, puts down the uh, regime which the Thebans had developed, Sparta sends in the troops, it actually occupies, I'm slightly eliding um, the timescale, but in the 380s, Sparta sends in a garrison. Sparta introduces regime change. It supports those extreme oligarchs who support Sparta come what may against the more moderate oligarchs and especially against the pro-Athenian uh, Thebans. And so you get a situation where Thebes is under occupation for three years. A number of exiles are generated, which is often the case. If one city occupies another, then some, and this happened, for example, to Athens in 404 BC. Sparta occupied Athens, exiles went to Thebes, and the Thebans mm. gave succor to the Athenian exiles. Well, this is now quid pro quo. In 382, Athens receives leading Theban exiles and supports them. And since Athens is a democracy, I think it's now that certain Thebans think, look, the only way we're going to achieve complete independence from Sparta 
and um, establish a separate identity of our own as a polity is by going democratic. Because if we're oligarchic, we're always under the risk that Sparta's going to come in or that people will appeal to Sparta. But if we transfer power to ordinary Thebans, if we have the majority able, one person, one vote, to, for example, um, make decisions on laws or to stand for office, then we're going to be in a better place. So Thebes is under occupation. In 379, a small handful with Athenian support, very cleverly, it's a trick, they find their way back into Thebes, they kill leading Theban politicians, the ultra-oligarchs, they manage to disarm, disable the, the Spartan occupying garrison. And so in 378, finally, Thebes is free to do what it wants. And what it wants to do is, one, become a kind of democracy, two, re-establish its dominance in its region, and to extend its internal reforms to the region as a whole. So in other words, to re-found the federal state on new democratic lines, then a state in that position of vulnerability absolutely crucially has to think about military uh, matters. Uh, Thebes, unlike most Greek cities, had a good cavalry, but cavalry were typically rich, so they were quite often oligarchically minded. If you're going to have a more egalitarian state, you need a more egalitarian army. You need to shift the balance of power towards the heavy infantry fighters. And Thebes was pretty good. I mean, it had had a good, uh, we call it hoplite, heavy infantry force back in the fifth century. But this needs to be done in a new way. And this is where two people suddenly emerge. I mean, they no doubt were better known to other people before at the time, but to us, they suddenly emerge. Pelopidas, or Pelopidas in Greek, he was the one who led that very daring trick, the reoccupation or, and liberation of Thebes. Secondly, a man who'd never left Thebes, even under the occupation, he hadn't gone into exile, but clearly had been oppositional Epaminondas, Epaminondas, and those two as a kind of duo, and it's very significant that they're often uh, on the same side, promoting the same policy, or one is off somewhere doing something, the other's off somewhere else, but they're acting in unison, in harmony, and so on. And at this time, there is a military reform whereby the Theban army uh, rethinks hoplite warfare. And we don't hear about this for a bit. I mean, there's a sort of hiatus before we first of all hear that this is um, going to happen. And the key change, the key difference that the Thebans introduce in terms of phalanx fighting is instead of having a phalanx only eight lines deep, and therefore it can be wider because it's fewer ranks deep, they concentrated their ranks. And we know that already in the 5th century, at one famous battle, it, on the ocean territory, as it happens, against Athens, which the Thebans won, they had massed 25 ranks deep. Well, by the end of the decade, the 370s, they're massing 50 ranks deep. Second change is, in a traditional hoplite heavy infantry uh, battle, 
Each side puts its best troops, its crack troops, on the right wing. So in the initial clash and encounter, the right wing hits the left wing of the opposition, which is typically the second best bunch of troops. Epaminondas and Pogba said, no, we're going to switch our crack troops, the best fighters, from the right to the left, so that when we encounter Sparta, which is the ultimate goal, our best troops are going to hit their best troops, the Spartans, and we're confident we can beat them. Secondly, as well as that switch, and imagine all the training, all the morale boosting, all the uh, things that go with that. It's not merely um, um, tactical, it's also strategic and ideological. Really quite a big major shift, because there's a real emphasis in Greek on the right. Right is good. You know, everything on the right, uh, as we say today, you know, Germans say richtig. Um, right is good, left is bad. <laughs> and that was true in ancient Greece. The other thing they um, did, which was a massive innovation, again, not entirely on the basis of um, complete uh, innovation, but on the basis of something that had already existed, but was now given a very radical new twist. We hear in the fifth century of several states that have elite forces of 300. 300 seems to be a kind of um, suitable number. If you're going to have a really uh, elite force, either in permanent training or you're selecting it for a particular task, for example, Leonidas at Thermopylae, 300, Argos, 300, so on. But the Theban 300 consisted of 150, we would say, gay couples. Now, what's unusual about this is... Um, that both partners, both parties, all 300 had to be adult. And in the ancient Greek world, what they called pederasty, paiderastia, by definition means the love or the lust of an adult for a sub-adult. So in a typical pederastic partnership, which existed in Sparta, in Athens, in all sorts of cities, in Thebes. Thebes was um, quite a prominent supporter of this kind of pair bonding among males. Typically, the older party is in his 20s and probably not yet married. The younger one is 1415 to 1780. In Thebes, partnerships clearly lasted beyond the threshold of 20, and the younger partner was also over 20, like the older one. And for some reason, it's quite an interesting thing, this band, this new force, this new tactical unit, was given a religious title. It was called the Sacred Band. And in Greek mythology, including Theban mythology, including Heracles, Hercules, Hercules had boyfriends. He had pairing relationships with boys. And therefore, this was very Theban to have a band. Hercules was a god, sacred band. And um, for some reason, the Thebans introduced this immediately after they became liberated from that Spartan occupation I mentioned. Somehow they managed to integrate this crack force with the otherwise best Theban fighters, so that the sacred band fought alongside the best Theban hoplites on the far left of the phalanx. And the two in sync 
Well, the Battle of Leuctra is the decisive battle, 371. Complicated to go into all the ins and outs of um, various pieces that were made and broken and the king of Persia was involved, you know, all that. But nevertheless, this was the end of Sparta as a great military power. It never recovered from the defeat of the Battle of Leuctra. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, I'm familiar a little bit with the Sacred Band, and that was that's one of the most fascinating aspects of all of this. They developed this crack fighting force that was part of the larger Theban army, but in this case it was 300 individuals that were uh, presumably the highest trained, best fighters, and it was 150 pairs of boyfriends, basically, or lovers, yeah. Um, and uh, do you feel that that is? Um, do you feel that that is definitely the case? I mean, I, I think that some of some of the sacred band aspects, uh, some believe, have been mythologized or exaggerated or something like that. I mean, what what is your take on kind of the, you know, the literal? Do you believe that's the literal truth of the sacred band? We have no, uh, you're putting your finger on the fact, we've got no, as it were, um, autoptic, uh, authentic, autobiographical source. So it'd be lovely if we had somebody who was one of the 300 at some point who'd written an account of his experience and that account had survived. We don't. And in fact, the first um, references to the title Sacred Band uh, hundreds of years later. So what it was called in the 360s, 750s and 40s and 30s, we're not absolutely sure. But it's so extraordinary to me because it raises that problem of the age grading that I don't think it could have been invented. If you see what I mean, if you're going to invent something that's yeah. so implausible, it's going to be shot down. It's going to be, you know, tell me another one, pull the other leg. So therefore I do, because nobody did that, no one said the very notion of it was impossible. I think that um, it was a fact. What therefore for me is the problem is, let's say one of the parties is killed or injured, you know, um, so injured that he can no longer fight. Um, does that remove the other one or does the man who's still okay of a pair have to find another partner? How right. they, in other words, recruited after the original 300, how did they keep it going from 378 to 338? 40 years, that's two generations. That's many, many iterations. Um, we don't know, and I find that problematic. But what we are then, to, and it may be the case that it was actually not in permanent commission uh, for all those 40 years. In other words, you've got a crisis coming up and you need a particular task force, so you raise a force on this basis. On the other hand, um, think of esprit de corps, think of um, regiments today which have colours and so on, so there will be people in the sacred band in, let's say, 350, who look back to the guys there in 370 and think, wow, you know, I must live up to that amazing record. At any rate, whatever about that, and I can't answer in terms of um, fact, what was the fact, what we can say is that at this 
major battle uh, of 338 BC, where Philip and Alexander of Macedon defeated the Thebans and the Athenians who were in revolt. This is also fought on Boeotian soil at Chironia, or modern Greek Cheronia. The Theban band fought, and not only fought, but rather like Leonidas's guys in Thermopylae 140 odd years earlier, they died to a man. And much, much later in the 19th century, a bunch of graves, 254 skeletons side by side, were found. And it's thought that they were the, the bodies, you know, that they were able to recover after the battle because if you don't of course bury someone within a certain amount of time of death they they burst the gases and so on you can't actually recover the corpse and that would be very i think um plausible as a memorial whenever exactly um you probably know there was a great big lion uh, commissioned and uh, positioned very near to that mass grave, which therefore seems to go with it. And therefore, um, there was a lion monument at Thermopylae. That was for Leonidas. And his name means, Leon means lion in Greek. But the Thebans obviously modeled themselves to some extent on the Spartan uh, elite. And by the way, there was a Spartan royal bodyguard of 300. I should have said each Spartan king had 300 dedicated 20-year-olds as his personal bodyguard. And so um, when, when it came to, um, I think it's probably when it came to restoring the entire city of Thebes after that 20-year hiatus in about 315, that probably was when they put up this stone line and they put it where they put it because they knew that the um, 300 had been buried nearby and the graves would still have been probably marked in some way already right right so so we know that this band of 300 warriors was instrumental in in being the among the first uh armies like that to just have an outright defeat of sparta um, am I mistaken in that? And they basically... No, Spartans had, um, had defeats of a relatively minor kind um, before 371, but this was the first absolutely clear-cut, decisive defeat for probably 300 years. The Spartans had won all major encounters um, that really made a difference um, in that 300-year period. As I say, there were failures there were setbacks but they were relatively minor okay so and then basically at that point be behind this innovative fighting force thebes became the superpower in greece and how did they approach things um i, I know that uh they may have been a little bit different on the practice of slavery than was common in athens uh in sparta what were they like as yeah. the, the Greek superpower? Well, the, they were not unlike the Athenians because the Thebans, like the Athenians, owned slaves individually. And they bought and sold them on the market or they captured them in war and sold them. And that's the thing. The Spartans were the outliers. They weren't completely unique, but they were uh, at one end of a the spectrum. Their slaves were Greek. 
And not only were they Greek, but they were all related to each other. They were a people. And they had a collective name, uh, which was not a flattering one. It was uh, helots, which in Greek means captives. And they outnumbered the Spartans considerably. So one of the consequences of the Thebans' defeat of the Spartans and the weakening of Sparta's um, control, both of their own territory and of um, their influence outside, one of the immediate direct consequences, Epaminondas led a huge invasion, 60-70,000 troops in the winter, very unusual, winter of 373-69, encouraged by Sparta's enemies in the Peloponnese, Argos, and one or two defecting allies, in they come and the direct and lasting permanent consequence of that invasion was the liberation of probably more than half of the Spartans' helot slave population. The ones that live to the west of a major mountain chain, which rises up to over 8,000 feet. So it's actually quite interesting that the Spartans were able to hold on to that slave population for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. even though they were separated from them by this mountain chain. And just to make absolutely sure that the Spartans couldn't go back, couldn't restore the status quo ante, Epaminondas presided over the foundation of a new Greek city, the independent free city, the city of the freed helots of Messenia, which was called Messenia. And the other thing he did, and this is more um, strategic, it's less ideological, in other words, to keep the Spartans hemmed in so that they couldn't rise again and start to impose themselves as they wished to do, or as they might wish to do, in an oligarchic way, whatever, whatever. Uh, Epaminondas also presided over the foundation of a new federal capital, for the territory, the people of Arcadia. Arcadia is a region in sort of central and central to the northeast of the Peloponnese, immediately abutting on Spartan territory in the southeast of the Peloponnese. And Megalopolis, so literally that was the name given to the capital, the big city, Megalopolis, was the federal capital for the Arcadian Federation. So Epaminondas not only defeated the Spartans, but liberated thousands of Greeks and promoted federalism in a very big way. So that's, um, I suppose, why I'm a great fan of his, for all those reasons. I happen to be a federalist. I'm uh, against slavery. And the other thing that's interesting about him was he apparently was a supporter of, a follower of Pythagorean philosophy and religion. And Pythagoreans were vegans because they believed that human souls migrated after death. Well, they might migrate into the body of that sheep that you're about to sacrifice and eat, or that cow that you're about to sacrifice. So they wouldn't take part in animal blood sacrifice, and they wouldn't eat meat. And therefore, uh, if it's the case that Epaminondas was a Pythagorean, he's um, trebly interesting, I think. Interesting. Yeah, Epaminondas. I think um, I've only ever read the name. This is the first time I'm trying to say it. Epaminondas. It sounds like he was, it sounds like he belongs in the upper echelon of 
of heroic Greek figures from history, although he's obviously not as well known uh, in popular culture as Alexander, Leonidas, Plato, Aristotle, etc. But, you know, he, it sounds like he helped develop one of the most dominant fighting forces ever in Greece. He, he was freeing slaves. He had, you know, he was seen at the time as one of these central figures. But uh, is it true? And I think I, I saw this while reading the, the Wall Street Journal review of your book that his biography was, was lost. Exactly. I'm just going to say that um, one reason he's not as famous as he otherwise might have been or should have been is Plutarch, who came also from Boeotia, he lived many centuries later, but he wrote biographies of what he thought were the most famous Greeks and Romans, and he compared them. So he'd take one famous uh, Greek, Alexander, and he'd compare him with one famous Roman, Julius Caesar. So of the 50 paired biographies, we have 46. And guess what? We don't have Epaminondas's. Why it didn't survive, we don't know. One reason may be that uh, the life of his sidekick, I mentioned Pelopidas, does survive. So we don't know as much about him as a person as we would ideally like. But we do have one thing from him, which is an epitaph. And interestingly, if he wrote it, it's even more interesting, but we can't be sure about that. But it seems he never married. Now, like Jesus, like St. Paul, it's very odd in um, ancient societies if you never marry and right. never have any children. You don't have you know, your, you know, to hand on the name as it's often the book. It's a very ancient sort of thing. Anyway, we do have his epitaph, and on it he says... He has two daughters. He's leaving two daughters. And you think, what? He, he wasn't married. He, he, how could he have two daughters? And they are the cities, Megalopolis and Messini. Because in Greek, cities are feminine in gender. Megalopolis, Messini. And he also says, or whoever wrote it says, I sheared the hair. I cut the hair of the Spartans. And um, it's a very brilliant image because Spartan adult male warriors, you perhaps know this, when, when they're 20 plus, they stop cutting their hair so that it could be right down the middle of their back and they braid it and put it underneath their helmet when they fight. But in everyday life, they're going around really long hair. And there's a big literature, you know, why did the Spartans grow their hair long when all other Greeks cut their hair short when they become adults, which is the case. Alexander doesn't have very long hair, but he has quite long hair. But most Greeks had short hair, they had beards. Um, Spartans, by the way, shaved their moustaches, which is interesting. They had beards, but they didn't have moustaches. Hmm. All sorts of facial hair things are quite significant body language. So um, Epaminondas' epitaph tells us that he cut the hair of the Spartans, so that was the main thing he did for them, stop them ever being a great power again. And secondly, he uh, founded these two cities. Great, great. Well, I definitely uh, want to look uh, more into his life, and I'm looking forward to reading your new book. I want to be respectful of your time. It's coming up on 9.55 my time. Um, 
And so I think you, you've got to go here shortly. Uh, but uh, yeah, brand new book by uh, Paul Cartledge, Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece. This has been a fascinating introduction. It's helped clear up definitely some things in my mind coming across Thebes uh, while researching ancient Greece. So I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can talk again in the future. Um, thanks a lot, Paul. Is there anything else you want to add? Is there any other place people need to be looking for your research or social no, media? No, all I'd add is that what you and I talked about was, um, I'm a historian, so this actually makes complete sense to me, politics, war, ideology. But there is another side, an entire other side of ancient Thebes, and I, I sometimes speak of uh, the city of myth as opposed to the city of history. And so all the famous myths, Oedipus, if I mention just Oedipus and Antigone, which might be perhaps household names, they are Theban myths, which are famous to us because of Athenian treatments of them, especially on the dramatic stage in tragedy. But they are Theban. Thebes had their own myths. They were um, a major contributor to a major ancient Greek achievement, which is mythography, mythology. So many children now start to learn about the ancient Greeks by studying their myths. Well, I'm trying to insist that Thebes has a really important part in that story of ancient Greeks and how they uh, have given to us as their legacy storytelling in this mythical form. So thank you very much. I'm very sorry I do have to go now, but it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Patrick. Thank you. You as well. Thanks a lot, Paul. Have a good day. Absolutely. Bye for now. Bye, Bye. for now. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. As always, you can find the links to the different things we talked about and many more articles about the mysteries of the ancient world at ancientheroes.net. Talk to you soon.